controversy strikes as famous gangster rapper starts beef with famous historian. It can only be the glorious episode 100 of the Scottish Liberty podcast with me, Anthony Samroff. And of course, me, the other guy. <laughs> and <laughs> off to a good start. So, our guest today is, yeah, more than another guy. More than a special guest. Leader of the Libertarian Podcast world, Tom Woods, the one and only Tom Woods. In fact, the Lord of, the Lord of, the Lord of Liberty. The Lord of Liberty. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 100 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Congratulations on 100 episodes. That's an achievement. Yeah, I mean, it was sometime in a bar that I came in and I said, oh, I've got a good idea. We should like put a monthly podcast or something like that. And it was so much fun that we decided to do it weekly. And, and we do it very weekly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> we succeeded. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we want to talk about a few things. Uh, we want to talk about, we want to get you to smack down in your usual fashion some myths about history. You are a historian as well as an Austrian economist, after all. So I thought we'd do that. But before, there's been some juicy gossip on the internet regarding you. Rumour has it that a rapper has started beef with Tom Woods, not just started beef, but thrown the N-word around. And I don't mean the usual N-word that hip-hop artists are familiar with. (laughs) Right. Uh, the 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 four letter N word, the Nazi. He's pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> he's pulled out the most slanderous term, perhaps. Yeah. Anyone could be accused of. So what is the what is the deal with that? What's the beef? I have to keep on saying beef to maintain a facade of having yeah. some. Being a vegetarian, that's kind of weird. But, uh. <laughs> Well, I mean, the the whole thing has been kind of crazy, but uh, this guy I never heard of before, but apparently he's been around a while. He's got a reputation. He's got a lot of Twitter followers, and he went after me mainly because I guess he was trying to argue with people who were saying that that National Socialism, the Nazi uh, folks' uh, philosophy, was a form of socialism, and he Come on now, that can't be so. So somebody sent him the talk I gave at the Mises Institute about Hitler's economic views. Now Hitler was talk. I should add. Thank you very much. I listened to it twice. Oh, great! Thanks. Okay. Well, it it was not. I mean, the point is not to say that Hitler was a commie or that he wanted complete state control over the economy, but he did want a heavy state presence in the economy, which is good enough, and especially given that these days. People define socialism so broadly. You know, they say they call Sweden socialist and Denmark socialist, but also Venezuela socialist and North Korea. So, so, I mean, if all those you can call socialist, then by that definition, sure, you you could say that about uh, national socialist journey. So, anyway, instead of listening, I mean, obviously, he was not going to listen to that lecture. He's not a. He's not a shame because there's lots of good stuff in it. Right. But it's too bad he wouldn't listen. So instead it was, well, let me see if I can discredit the guy giving the lecture, because if he turns out to be a bad guy, then I don't even need to assess anything he says, which is, you know, play the man and not the ball. Yeah. Right. So 
anyway, he tried to dig around. And of course, you know, I have enemies. I've made enemies over the years. But the trouble is my enemies so struggle to find anything I've said that's such a problem. So the best they can do is like a photo of me instead of in front of some Confederate battle flags back in the days when I had hair. I don't even know what year that could possibly be. I'm so accustomed to these with beards on the shore today. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so it just became a matter of, well, Woods is a bad guy and this and that. And so then it just, so then it, then it became um, Eric July, my friend and I are kind of like Nazis and I, what I haven't come back with, my friend Ben Settle was recommending that I just come back with, given that uh, Quelly has a grinning photograph with a guy named Louis Farrakhan. Now, in Scotland, you may not know who he is. but No, Louis Farrakhan was uh, a nation of Islam. That's right. He's, he, and, and they have rather peculiar racial views themselves. So thank heavens black people can't be racist or there'd be a problem there. So my friend Ben Settle says, well, you should come back with something like, well, look, I'm not quite at Farrakhan level Nazi, but, you know, whatever. And then you just just go from there, just the absurdity of the whole thing. So it should. But the bizarre thing about it is this guy has nothing to do. This went on. And this is not a joke. This went on for 12 hours nonstop. Now, nonstop on his part. I mean, I went and did things. Then the next day we woke up. And he started in again. And it went on the fourth day, fifth day. I think it's still going on. Well, he's going to admire his dedication, if I mean, nothing else. Nice. On the other hand, I think I am doing the world a service. I have prov- I have stalled him for at least five or six days from producing any new music. So that's, right. you know, that's something. <laughs> oh, that is a death. I mean, not only, not only have you rebuked his character, but you've dissed his music. <laughs> I have the best suggestion for how this should be settled ever. A rap off. Not a rap battle. Well, yeah, a rap battle. Because I, 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 you, you, you could lose, but he, I've got the best suggestion ever. What I think you should do is get Eric July to write a rap diss of Quelly. Oh, he had you, but, oh, I was just going to say that you could, you, you could go and he could write one for you. And you can go on YouTube and watch <laughs> because you're the most unlikely rapper ever. Yeah, I mean, it's going to remain that way. <laughs> but you know what's funny about the whole situation, of course, is that um, people who, who, again, it's hard to believe that a genial guy like me would have, um, you know, let me just use the word enemies in the libertarian movement. But some of them capitalized on this to side with really a loathsome oh person in terms of the way people. Yeah, it's absurd. And so they all jumped in to give him ammunition against me, even though on every issue under the sun, he's horrific. But if they can use him to get at me, I mean, and so that hasn't turned out very well for them because the responses have been overwhelmingly in my favor, which is nice. Um, And and, there's even one of them who's dancing on my grave like this rapper has finished me off. And yet somehow I'm looking at my download figures and they're still pretty robust. (laughs) Well, you know what Churchill said? You have enemies? Good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. Yeah, you're darn right. <laughs> and you know what, my friend, I like the way Ben Settle, um, Ben uh, reworked a famous movie quotation when he said, look, you know, the, the, my attitude in these situations, uh, you know, when you're dealing with people like critics who are just, you know, what are they? What are their, what's their standing in the world? He says, my view is a boot does not have a quarrel with an ant. 
Right. Okay. Uh, oh, that's good. I like it. I'm sorry to have to be that way, but that is kind of the way I think these days. I don't really have a quarrel with these people. <laughs> well, I mean, look at all those books on your shelves. Have you actually read them? I actually wrote some of them. Uh, this this whole <laughs> this whole bottom okay. line here. One. Oh wow! Books I've either written or or foreign language translations of my books. Uh, so please, I finished one that was twenty five thousand words long with all those books. Well, when, when, when the whole lot of them can match one third of that, then we'll talk. Until then, it's the boot and the ant. That's good, okay. man. That's so good. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, when, last time the libertarian movement had a swipe at you, we did um, a show called Libertarian Uncle Tom's Tom, Libertarian Uncle Tom Woods. And uh, I said that it might be a bit, I don't know if you think that's quite a controversial thing to say, but I call them libertarian Uncle Toms because they'd rather eat their own than go after, like, try and change left-wingers' views on economics, which is a hard thing to do. Do what right. you do, which you've done reliably, which is go up in front of right-wing audiences and challenge them on their uh, love of the warfare state and... Um, or, or their worship of Reagan or something like that. Do you know what I mean? That's the hard work. Yeah. Going to people who aren't in the movement and trying to change their views on things that are really fundamental and matter. So for someone who considers themselves in the movement to try and eat your whole, I consider them, you know, that's why I call them, that's why I call them libertarian Uncle Toms. Is there a touch of, uh, do these people generally think that they're, and cringing, so to speak, they'll make themselves somehow more palatable or acceptable to, to the left. I'm sure they think that. And, and meanwhile, yeah. the left has no idea they exist or can't stand the sight of them. Yeah, so, from the, the, the get They're never going to like you because you don't want a welfare state, and they do. And they're fundamentally opposed to free markets, and you're fundamentally in favor of free markets. So there's no use sucking up to them. They're never going to like I think you. I have lost audio. Oh. Can you still hear us? I can. Okay, cool. Um, the only thing you can do is try and change their opinions on economics. You know. Well, yeah, you know what? Let me, let me say something about that because you know, in the U.S., of course, we have media that have certain sympathies. So MSNBC is known as the more left-leaning network, and Fox News is the more neoconservative network, and. You know, I've had choice words for the neocons over the years and to the point where I had people on my own side saying, look, Woods, enough's enough already. I mean, you got to focus on the left. Now I focus on the left and they say, Woods, come on now. Enough, 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 enough with the left. What about the right? But, okay. but anyway, I just want to first point out that I have had choice words for the neoconservatives and written a lot yeah. against them and stood against them. But yeah. the fact is that even though you could say that there are some parts of libertarianism that ought to appeal to the left, you know, the anti-war, the civil liberties, the free thought and all that. Yeah, liberalization yeah. of drug laws. I beg your pardon? The liberalization of drug laws. Yeah, right. Yeah. The liberalization of drug laws, right. But the fact is, MSNBC generally does not go out of its way to, you know, to roll out the red carpet for us the way Fox News does. Now, that's true. Right. Uh, you know, we're not exactly their number one guest. But I have a million times better chance getting on there than I do, although I have been on MSNBC. But but the bottom line is it, it hasn't worked. The overtures to the left that they've made simply have not worked. They have generated nothing. Because why, why does the left need them? The left does not need them in any way. What do we need you for? 
if you're unreliable on some of our most important stuff, why would we need you? And your pathetic attempt to suck up to us only makes you more contemptible. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. They'll just keep on pushing the line a little bit further and pushing the line a little bit further. Now, under Bush, I could see why at that stage, you might think that the libertarian movement had more sympathies with the left than right. Unfortunately, for whatever reason since then, the, the, the worm has definitely turned. And uh, we do tend to talk more about the left than the right. Um, I mean, we do, we've got shows on the alt-right, we've called them out on all sorts of business. But I feel like in the, I hate to use this term because it sounds like such an alt-right term, but in the culture war, it's like the left is a force to be, is the force to be reckoned with. Certainly in academia. Yeah, in academia. And in the media and in politics and, you know, and in entertainment it's just a monolith. It really is a monolith such that if there is an oddball who has a free thought or a dissident thought, that person makes the news because of what an an oddity it is. So yeah. And also I think we can get a glimpse at what rule by the hard left might look like in the way they, they run universities and they run other institutions where one side is clearly privileged you know, the, the hilarious thing is their use of the word privilege. They privilege their own point of view to the exclusion and complete demonization of others. So that's why I think it is worth focusing on that, because, it, as I say, it gives us a glimpse into what life could be like under a, you know, a President Elizabeth Warren or something. That's the threat, because, I mean, there's always something to bribe people to vote for you for with when you're when you're on the left like there's lots of government whereas the the right are losing because partly because they can't offer that many bribes i mean yeah the military industrial complex and their corporate companies are a force to wreck but but it's nothing compared to being able to bribe every man woman and child with free health care welfare this education there's so many goodies to hand out mm. you know um, and the, the right just cannot reckon with that uh, bribing people with free stuff. Uh, do you think this is maybe behind some people in the libertarian movement, especially in the US, California, I think, in particular, there's a lot of libertarians there who are all for the... Uh, um, basic income? Yeah, yeah, the basic income thing. Um, Zoltan Ispan, he's banged on about it. He says he's got some new way of paying for it by selling off federal owned land, which is probably stolen in the first place, but he, he reckons he can pay for it some other way. Why Why do they fail to see the trap of the, of the universal basic income? Uh, <clears throat> well, I don't know what they're... Well, I, I can tell them what the trap is. I don't know what the, yeah. the mental block yeah. is, other than I think... I think for some people, and the thing is, you know, people attribute motives to me that I don't have. And so I really, I hesitate to attribute motives as to why they're doing it, because in some cases it could just be outright cowardice and that I'm sick and tired of being so out of the mainstream and being viewed as such an oddball. Maybe if I came up with this public policy proposal, I might get this table. You know, I think there's a little bit of that, but also it could generally be, they say, this would be an improvement over the current system, but whether it is or it isn't, and that's debatable, the point is that you're not going to replace the current system. That's not how it's ever worked. It never works that way. Mm-hmm. You just add another layer on He's it. Add another layer. Yeah. Hmm, I believe that someone's just about to 
release a book on the universal basic income from a libertarian <laughs> perspective. That would be handy. I remember that something about that's coming in in September. I think September the 2nd. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's by, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's by a guy who had the guts to get up in front of a left-wing audience and make a presentation about it. Now, you see, if only the left libertarians who bother me yes. could spend their time doing that, had the guts to do that, as the same way I've had the guts to stand up to the right wing, then we'd be getting Yeah, it. yeah. Very noble. And I, I love when you tell that story. If I can tell the story about how you were about to give us speech and you, you weren't sure if you should do it or not it's a great story tell it oh that's right yeah this was uh in los angeles and we had a really mixed group there because it was a nullify now event so we had 10th amendment people libertarians constitutional conservatives but we also had just some regular old mainstream republican types we had plenty of veterans in the audience we had people wearing a Operation Desert Storm veteran hats. That was the Iraq war in 1991. And I was going to give a talk hitting all the major, excuse me, all the major issues, domestic and foreign. And then I got up there and I thought, well, you know, for this audience, maybe I should just focus on the domestic issues because there's, there'll be too much disagreement on the foreign stuff. But, but really what I was trying to do was rationalize cowardice. I was, I was hoping to just get up there, give a crowd pleasing speech get my standing ovation and then go out to Denny's and that would be the end of it. And instead I thought to myself, I honest to goodness thought to myself, could you imagine Murray Rothbard saying, I better not deliver this hard message to this crowd. Impossible to imagine. So I got up there and I gave that. I spent most of the time, by the way, I think it's an object lesson in how to do this, to be honest with you, because I look back on it. I'm actually kind of happy with how I wound up, in my panic, <laughs> how I wound up handling it, because I spent the first major chunk of it building up some capital with those folks, making quite clear where my allegiances were. And so they, I, so I brought them along with me. They were eaten out of the palm of my hand. And then I said, but the same way I don't believe them on domestic policy, I don't believe their foreign policy either. I don't believe what they say. And then I went, I, not only did I say, I think this is wrong, or maybe we, we American interests would be better served if we did X or Y. I don't use language like that. I don't talk about American interests. That's, that's government. Yeah. Yeah. So instead I said, now look, here's what's going on over there in the Middle East. And here's what people like the folks in this audience have been, yeah. uh, have consented to and even encouraged. And so I talked about you know, I mean, people, the humanitarian disaster and that if, if this were an earthquake somewhere on Earth and people were dying and malnourished, well, everybody would be all tears and pity and we'd be having a benefit concert for them. But because it's victims of a war where we've demonized those people, we, we don't even they're not even on our radar. And I, and I pointed at them and I said, you are better than this. You yeah. people who lecture us about moral relativism all day. This is the worst moral relativism. Well, if the U.S. government says these aren't people, then I don't even need to think about their humanitarian catastrophe. You're better than this. Knock it off. Hmm. And I got a standing ovation from them anyway. You know what? It goes to show you, you say it, and they realize that this guy's real, and they also realize he could easily have gotten up here and just given us that crowd-pleasing speech. Yeah. Yeah. They respected your integrity. And that you told them what you really thought instead of hiding. And, and you know what? Can I say one other thing about this, uh, Anthony? You know, 
people, especially people who have followed me a long time. I mean, I have over 1,200 podcast episodes, okay? That's that's a whole lot. <laughs> and But not just podcast episodes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I've got out yeah. there online if you look around. Um, and for people who have listened to any fraction of those, they know that what I most want to do on my program is build up my guest and tell right. people all about the wonderful work this guest is yeah, doing. Yeah, you do it very wonderfully. And I appreciate that. And a lot of the people I have on, my, my, my folks have never heard of before. And, and, I, and I say, you know, I've got this platform and I want to use it to take people who are unjustly uh, in obscurity and bring them out to the light and to the general public and say, here, here's another person. you Just to show how deep the libertarian, to, to use an American expression, how deep our bench is. To, to show that it's not just five celebrities. We actually have some great people. And, and then those people are no great people. And it goes really. So I am not the sort to spend the time of the guests talking about my accomplishments. I want to talk about them and I want to highlight mm. them. But lately I have had to go into look, you snots. <laughs> crying out loud, you're, you're forcing me to be in this mode, but look, right. I've done some stuff that, de- that demands respect. And if you don't want to respect yeah. it, then go, you know, go take a hike because you haven't done it. And I'm not saying you haven't written best-selling books because that's hard to do. I get that. That's hard. There's a little luck involved. You know, it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But you haven't even tried. I mean, where are the, on that side the carping critics? Where's their Dave Smith even? Right. You know? where, where, where's, where's their Michael Malice? Where, like people who are up and comers, who are smart, who are doing things, who are accomplishing things. Where are their scholars? Where, where are they? What, what are they doing? Who, who are their people who could, if they gave a speech, you know, fill a hall with hundreds of people? I mean, where? Where are these people? So I have to go up to them and say, I'm doing the stuff you should be doing. You're saying I should criticize the right more. I'm the only one doing it. Like you, you, yeah, you you're right. Nice things about the right wing from your stupid computer keyboard, but I'm the one who's actually out there doing it, and you're going to criticize me because I'm unfashionable. It's just, yeah. Anyway, so I've, yeah. I have been doing that lately, and then for a few days from now, I'll stop that, and I'll get back to being the mild mannered Tom Woods. Cool, excellent. Well, I like it. Yeah, what you said reminds me. Like um, Tom says, sometimes he's sick of. Libertarians being patronized by conservatives, like where they're yeah, like where the uh, we're like the kid brother, you know, like, yeah. the, like the idea, you know, oh you're you're a libertarian, oh that's so cute, that's that that's nice, you know. Once you grow up though, you know, you right. realize, you know, you, you know that that's the kind of attitude. You know, right. oh, there's a little libertarian streak in his all, and you go, well, you can make it a little bit wider, could you? You know, so it's a little bit more obvious because. I, I would, I'm sure it's the same in the states, but here in Scotland, definitely, and in the UK, the Conservatives are 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 a shambles. Really, you know, the only the only reason they're there and in power is because the left have nothing to offer that's remotely competent at the moment. Right. You know, so but the, in terms of conser- anything remotely resembling a conservative value or principle, they're bereft. Yeah, and what I add to that is the the same. They don't turn up to the fight to. Um, Defend capitalism. No, they never make a moral argument for they, capitalism, or even a utilitarian argument for capitalism, <laughs> or any argument. Or yeah. any argument, they apologise for. Oh yes, we, you know, we fundamental the free market's good, but like, you know, we need we, uh, we need good regulation and blah 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 all that. Um, so it's like, I think long term libertarian. If we if we were to have any chance of retaining a market economy 
libertarianism has to replace conservatism. Conserv Dinosaurs will die, you know, as the primary force in politics. I mean, I don't, yeah. and when I say conservatism, you, you know, I mean big C conservatism. I don't mean yeah. conservative values or things like that, but right. as a political doctrine. And I think Rand was great saying that the conservative arguments for capitalism are like, oh, men aren't good enough for socialism and oh capitalism's good because tradition uh, and all uh, because yeah. we've had it for a long time or or the religious argument for it and she went guys this is you're, you when you say that your philosophy is not based on reason and evidence you're basically saying that reason and evidence belongs to the left and that's why she hated conservatism please please come back well, that is, of course, is that is, in fact, uh, I like Michael Malice's point that conservatism is progressivism going the speed limit. I like it. I don't know if you guys have speed limits in Scotland, but we sure have them here. Oh, but we have anarchy here. We have anarchy here, so there's no <laughs> we speed wish. limits. No, we have, we don't even have roads. So. We, have, we, have 20 miles, we have 20 miles per hour speed limits in Edinburgh, <laughs> which is ludicrous because at most times you'd be lucky to approach something like 20 miles per hour, you know, because you've been in such heavy traffic. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. I've never been over there. I'd like to get over there someday. Oh, well, yeah, you should do it. You you should should get yourself a show at the Edinburgh Fringe. It's just about to finish at the moment, the big festival, you know, biggest arts festival in the world. Uh, it's just about finishing here. But it's it's crowded with uh, with left-wing shows. There's always something like, what, ridiculous, like 200 feminist themed shows or something um, like that maybe a hundred yeah but like too many too many too many <laughs> too too many one too many um, but yeah but in terms so of like, I mean, I, I, having come from it myself right. yeah I, I know what a mess it is but the thing is what i also know having come from it is that there are a lot of people who are stuck in it just by default yeah, they don't really know now. In the age of the internet, it's, it's a little a cultural attachment more than anything else. Yeah, or, or they now in the age of the internet, it's a little trickier to claim ignorance of libertarianism, sure. that, which, which I genuinely could in the early 1990s. I knew there was a libertarian party, but that was all I knew. So I just thought, well, I'm not on the left, so I guess this is where I am, and right. that turned out not to be quite right. So I can. I can reach a lot of those people because I know the frustrations that they feel. They say, well, I believe in this. And yet the people who speak for me are pretty terrible at speaking for me. Mm, and so yeah. I can, and then also I can show them there are some inconsistencies in the way they think. Why are they so skeptical of the claims of the state in some areas, but in the mm. most crucial areas, the lifeblood of the state itself, whether it's the Fed that they don't really know anything about. It's not that they cheerlead for it. They don't know anything about it or the military, or law and order, and stuff like that. Yeah. On this, there's it's just cheerlead, cheerlead, we love these government employees. Well, yeah. hold on a minute, yeah. come on. So I can, I can reach them in a way that a hectoring leftist couldn't reach them. Now, at the same time, I can't reach the left as effectively, because I can't, in the same way the left brain themselves, you know, talking to the right. But, but the funny thing is, without trying, I have brought people over from the left and I don't get those people. Those I have to say must be the most open-minded people on this earth that they were willing to sit through Tom Woods and actually learn and change their minds. I was the other day on Twitter saying I was, I'm not kidding you. I was a hardcore social justice warrior before. And she said, now I'm totally for Tom Woods. And I, all I can say is you're a wonderful person because I don't know how you did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so great. What was the? Was there anything 
remotely, you know, resembling a Damascus moment for you, or was it something gradual? When was the point you can look back and say that's when the penny dropped, so to speak, in terms of libertarianism? Well, you know, it took me a lot longer than it takes people today, and not just because they have the internet and I don't, but rather because I had at, at, the, at once a very thick head and a very open mind. So I would, I, I would, in a flighty way, flip from one thing to another. Like I've, I've told the story before of how be, just because of my, uh, you know, in the four, the, the, the personalities thing, I'm a sanguine sort of, and, uh, and I, I would, I would jump onto something, really get enthusiastic about it. Like, like I'd go to the bookstore and I would find this book on how I could teach myself Italian and I'd be so excited. And then after chapter one, I would move on to something else. Oh my gosh. You mean I could learn such and such by reading this book? And it would just be da 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 da. Well, in the 1990s, I was that way ideologically. It was oh, this one's interesting. So, so that whatever. So I started off as a middle of the road member of the Republican Party in the U.S. So middle of the road moderate meant I was bad on all issues. I was bad on foreign policy. It really is true. I favored intervention domestically and foreign, and that made me a moderate. So. So that was bad. Then I went to college and I became m- much more clearly uh, defined uh, as an ideological neoconservative. There's no question about it. I was, I, I was all for the U.S. empire. Then I discovered libertarianism, and that, that pulled me in. Like I met Murray Rothbard. I read a lot of his stuff. I was very impressed. I could not follow them the whole way, but I was intrigued. Right. But then I met – I fell in with the, the so-called paleoconservatives – who were the anti-war, you know, they want, yeah, well, the whole world, right? types. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They wanted to bring the troops home and, but, but, you know, they were for protectionism and they had some other deviation, let's say, but I kind of bought into that for a while. And, and in fact, I even have a little something I wrote that, that clearly implies that free trade's a bad idea. So I went through that okay. base for a number of years. And that's when all my enemies today, they like to point to those years and say, look what a terrible libertarian Woods is. Hmm. Yeah, I know. When I wasn't a libertarian, I was an awful libertarian. <laughs> you know, so that's finally the thing that convinced me, actually, although this isn't exactly going to appease those people, was I, I was talking back in around the year 2000. I was talking to Hans Hoppe and I was just laying out for him. These are my problems with libertarianism. This is why I can't be one. So, again, going to show, I really didn't think of myself as one. And you can't in, in the 1990s, you can't find a single thing I wrote where I identify myself as a libertarian. Yeah. Not one. Not one. So, but, but yet again, they're all obsessed with those years. Okay. I get, look, I've already told you, you know, I, but, but I told him and he said, wait till my new book comes out. I think it addresses a lot of your concerns. Okay. I did. Well, his new book was democracy, the God that failed. And I read that and I thought, you know, I think I can be an intellectually fulfilled libertarian at this point. So that if there had to be a moment, it was, I had read a lot of the literature, but the, the cumulative force of that combined with the addition of that one book, and I said, okay. And plus, I felt like conservatism and the paleo, I felt like it just wasn't going anywhere. Right. And, and, and there was a lot of energy with the libertarians, and, and so all that combined to, to kind of bring me on board. Okay. And did you, did you go straight from, from that? Did you, did you go from the deep end? Did you go straight from that to ANCAP or did you? Yeah, I did. I did. I hadn't at no time, even those couple of years where I was reading Rothbard, I had never been an ANCAP at that point. I just, in my mind, I just couldn't imagine how it would work uh, well enough. But what's interesting is that since, especially since the internet, 
there have been so many more people who have filled in blanks, who have helped to explain a lot. I mean, I think Bob Murphy has made some important theoretical contributions, but but there's a bunch. There's a bunch of great people. Michael Humer has done some good stuff. Um, Gary Chartier. Uh, there are a lot of people who have kind of moved it a little bit f- uh, farther along so that it's easier for my mind's eye to conceive of what it would all look like. And so yeah. it's easier to be an ANCAP today, I think, than ever. For sure. I think uh, back in the day when he was uh, talked a lot about libertarianism, Stefan Molyneux even had some good ideas on how certain things would be handled without a state. At least he influenced me. And um, what I actually want to ask you on that point is, how, how would you judge the ratio within the libertarian movement of ANCAPs to minarchists? Because online it seems to me that more people are ANCAPs than minarchists, but I don't know if that's what it's like when you get to the ground, the grassroots in the US. That's a good question. Honestly, yeah, within the overall movement, the problem is, right, I hang around with ANCAPs all the time. So I am, you know, skew in that direction. But but then also, when you go online, you go on social media, just say, you do see an awful lot of those people. But then if you were to go to, let's say, the Libertarian Party convention, then I think you would run into a lot of uh, minarchists, certainly. But but you would run into more ANCAPs than you would think in a political party. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had the head of the Libertarian Party of Canada on my show, Tim Moen, and he's an ANCAP. And I said, how on earth? And I'm not saying that it's incompatible because I could imagine right. strategically saying I'm going to use the political system. It's not that. It's how do you campaign <laughs> or how do you right. debate? You get on that stage right. and they say, okay, you want to privatize the military. You have 60 seconds to explain yourself. Uh, I don't see how somebody does something like that. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it's hard. So I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly think the ratio is getting more and more top heavy with ANCAPs. Yeah. Um, but honestly, it would just be a gut instinct. I mean, my gut yeah. instinct would be 25% ANCAP. That's my gut instinct. I mean, a social media is 75%. But I think the average person who says, you know, I'm going to vote for Gary Johnson has probably never even heard that there is an ANCAP option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would describe myself as a theoretical ANCAP and a practical minarchist in terms of I, I, I have no problem with anarcho-capitalism in theory. I think it's a great, I think that it makes perfect sense to me. But getting there, how we get to that uh, from the current situation is maybe, and, and being leader, obviously, of a political party that takes uh, takes part in the political system, not the, not because I have any great belief in the political system itself. It's just something, it's just a platform. It's just another platform to use. And you've got to be very careful how much, how, how much you compromise with it because it, it just destroys you. But uh, there would be no point of having a party if we would say, okay, we're an ANCAP party. Okay, well, what's the point of you then? <laughs> you know? So I think that the party itself retains a minarchist position. So I call myself a practical minarchist, but I, theoretically I, 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 I'm in the ANCAP camp. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. And, and with me, this has never been an issue that I have felt compelled to debate endlessly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fun to talk about over drinks, but the, I mean, there are ANCAPs who just cannot imagine having uh, productive relationships with minarchists. And I just think that yeah. this is just not a useful way to thank people. You know, or uh, so I just, I don't think that way. I have plenty of friends who are minarchists and I, no, I'm not going to break with you. People's front of Judea, you know, it's playing off. Um, 
But yeah, I guess that pragmatically I'm a gradual reductionist, but philosophically I'm an anchor. Shall we do some? Shall we debunk some historical myths? This has been great. Like I don't mind. I don't mind us uh, freestyling. It's been really fun. Yeah, go for some historical yeah, myths. Yeah, well, maybe we can do it in a. If depending on how many you have, we could do it in a lightning round style. Yeah, so, yeah. so I don't use all the time on the first one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's wrong? You've probably heard this a million times, but you know, we're Scottish and I can't get my head around this. What's wrong with saying that the Civil War was American Civil War, I should add? Yeah, not the English Civil War. Well, let's not even go into the problems with even calling it the Civil War. Right. Then that opens up up a lot of other issues. All right, well. Why wasn't it about slavery? Wasn't it about slavery? Let's call it the War of Northern Aggression. That'll that'll get all those big fans of mine out there uh, real happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, you got to you got to take this on. You know, uh, this is the in a way the founding myth of the U.S. empire okay. is is the Lincoln myth. And if you're not going to take this on, then that's okay. There's a division of labor here, but don't go hectoring those of us who want to, because it is the founding myth of the U.S. empire. Uh, because it, it there, and in fact, I, could, I should probably write an essay uh, uh, with that title as fleshing okay, that. But, 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 to, but to keep us uh, focused here. I think that it's it's fair to say that the Southern secession had plenty to do with slavery, given that yep. they said so in a number of the documents in which they seceded. For example, South Carolina, December 1860, made quite clear that that, that was uh, central to its decision. But, the, but, see, but this is a conflation of two different things. The hmm. question is, was the war about slavery, not was the the breaking away right. and war certainly was not about slavery. at least at the beginning, given that Lincoln was quite prepared to come to some kind of an arrangement um, and was in fact was willing to, um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure that this could be done, but was willing to amend the constitution to forever protect slavery where it existed. So that, so there could be no abolition. He, he would have done that if he could keep the, the, uh, states, uh, together. He was not in favor, um, of, um, well, we'll just put it this way. Um, the, for the first at least 18 months, uh, there was no attempt to end. I mean, there was slavery was still going on in some states that had not seceded. And there, there and was other no, no states were still returning runaway slaves. And, and that is true. Now, in fact, Judge Andrew Napolitano, who's a big television personality in the U.S. and who's a yeah. hardcore libertarian, got in trouble on on uh, John, what used to be John Stewart's program, the, t- the, uh, the Daily Show, yeah. because he pointed out that the Fugitive Slave Act was actually still being enforced. Uh, during the war, and mm-hmm. he was lambasted for this. Oh, that's not true. So I made a video for him uh, on YouTube where I just pulled out the documents and I showed it was N- not a whole lot, but the question wasn't a whole lot or, or you know or a little. The question was yes or no, and the answer is yes. So the judge was right, and this gaggle of historians or herd of historians, as Ralph Rako used to call them, they were wrong. So as, and and moreover, Lincoln was very much. I mean, he said in his first inaugural, he had nothing, no problem with the Fugitive Slave Act. I mean, no, no problem with any of this. Uh, uh, so yeah. so that. But moreover, if all you talk about is slavery, then you miss also. As, as not to say slavery is a trivial thing. Obviously, if you abolish slavery, this is a great step forward for mankind, uh, as it was throughout the Western Hemisphere, where it 
almost never involved a war, but or it, it never involved a war. It involved some violence in, in Haiti, I suppose. But but, but the, to me, the big thing is it solidifies in people's mind the idea that the central government can be an engine of progress if only it's unleashed to 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 uh, carry out violence. Uh, because you say, look, after all, they abolished slavery. That's true, but th- that is true, and that's not a small thing. But those same regimes, highly centralized regimes, also brought about World War One, a you know a civilizational catastrophe that would have been unimaginable on a scale like that for the frugal monarchs of Europe. That they 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 could have had endless troops, endless money. Inflation, all they need, income taxation, institutions that were basically unknown up to that point. So and so you, you know, you had more casualties in that war than you had slaves in the South. So that engine of liberation can be an engine of mass destruction of civilization. And but but for again, for my left libertarian friends, there's this naivete about this. And, and I don't think we should have that. This was the American unification uh, process. This was the process whereby this loose confederation of states became a centralized regime. And this was the age when Germany became centralized. Italy became centralized. Japan is moving towards centralization. And that becomes the model for the whole world. And in fact, there, I would say the political libertarians in America have that as their model. We're going to have a one unified regime where individual rights will be protected by a central government. And okay. that's not, this is my daughter, little Sarah. Um, uh, but, but that's not really how it works. What you need are, you need to break power up into little bits, and then maybe you'll have some chance. But the idea that you're going to have one indivisible central government that can't be challenged by any of its constituent parts, and it will enforce individual rights, is not, I think, a sustainable position. Right. Is, is there is any truth? Did, 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 did the North at any time, did they make any serious attempt to, to buy the slaves? Did they make any serious attempt to, to compensate slave owners? No, 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 there wasn't. Um, no, there wasn't. I mean, there's a part of us that thinks, well, why should they? Because, you know, why would you, you wouldn't compensate a thief if you take away his yeah. stolen property, you know? So, so likewise, an well, idiot. Maybe cheaper than a war. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a libertarian recoils at this because of what what it involves. But but with me, I would say on something like that, do I want purity or do I want to avoid what now historians say the old figure is wrong? Uh, you know, eight hundred thousand deaths. I mean, you used to say six hundred and twenty, but they're now saying it's more than that. If I could avoid eight hundred thousand deaths with some payoffs. I would, you know, I'll just say that. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I would do it only in this case. If I could have avoided World War One with some payoffs, maybe I would have. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So that's quite a lot of food for thought, even broader than I realized. You wrote a book called How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. Now, the um, widely heard prevailing view, I would suggest, is that after the... Roman Empire collapsed. The church was a force, uh, the, the predominant force, the prevailing force in Europe. And it held science and civilization back by doing things like saying you couldn't say that the earth went around the sun and things like that. 
Um, what is wrong with a view of history that says that the Catholic Church basically retarded civilization? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, that is why I wrote the whole book. <laughs> so you give us the elevator pitch. We'll pick one area. Let's say that I think science is the area that most, I mean, most people don't say they held back agriculture. You know, right, they say sure. that they held back science. And in fact, the monks were actually real pioneers in agriculture. But, but when, it, when it came to science, the, the, the standard view was that, you know, that uh, the church was just an obstacle because the church believes in religion and science believes in evidence. I mean, like it's that it's about that level, but what the mainstream and you don't have to trust me and just go look it up. What the mainstream now teaches about this is that there are reasons to disbelieve this, some theoretical and some uh, based on the, the, the historical record. The theoretical would be that the church and its theology taught the idea that the universe is a place of order and mathematical regularities and relationships and patterns. Yeah. And that really is what, science is trying to do is it's trying to reduce the phenomena of our experience down to uh, formulas, basically down to a a series of mathematical relationships. So you expect to find that in an orderly universe. And when you're raised in that kind of a milieu, you're more likely to go out and and expect that the scientific method will work because in an orderly universe, you can repeat an experiment under the same conditions and expect the same results. So the, the consensus overwhelmingly was that although God has the raw power to perform, uh, Sarah, please. Okay. Uh, Although God has the raw power to perform any, miracle he wants this is not how he normally behaves he he's built this orderly universe and so on and so forth so but what's particularly striking is that we have so many people within the clergy who are actually pretty interesting scientists so the first person to measure the rate of acceleration of a freely falling body was father giambattista riccioli or the founder of Egypt. Oh, look, I know all these people. Father Athanasius Kircher, uh, the father of Egyptology. Um, it was a um, uh, Father Roger Boscovich was the father of atomic theory. And it goes on and on and on. When you study the history of mathematics, you find that the Jesuits really dominate there because 5% of the greatest mathematicians were Jesuits. And they were only around for a tiny sliver of the history of math up to the point of that mm-hmm. pole. So, uh, and then the study of earthquakes dominated by the Jesuits. So they even call earthquake uh, seismology is called the Jesuit science because they dominated that. They wrote the major textbook on it. So the, the point is that if you're going to try to claim this, you have a huge, huge pile of countervailing evidence against you. So, you know, at least for, for our purposes for this short thing, because I'm not, I'm not doing this in a lightning round at all. I'm, sure, I'm sure. terrible. I'm <laughs> taking way too much time with these answers. No, it's always time to start having answers. Isn't it true as well that, where are we getting the echo from? Isn't it true as well that, um, the, who was the guy who discovered, who postulated that the, the planets went round the, the sun and not the oh, other way around? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but the, the the Catholic Church persecuted, I think. Uh, oh, Galileo! Possibly. Galileo, yeah. Galilei. That was anybody who's looked at that, even you know, based, you know, a, a summary fashion, finds out. Well, it was actually the academics who went to the church because they, they were angry. They it was actually the secular academic guys who believed the the you know the Ptolemaic cosmology. 
they went to uh, the, the Catholic Church and, and as a last resort and says, okay, this guy, Galileo Galilei, is teaching stuff that is contrary to, to Scripture, which, of course, it isn't contrary to Scripture, but that's the way they looked at it at the time. So he was really persecuted at the behest of secular science because they couldn't do anything about him. They couldn't shut him up in the secular world, so they had to get the Catholic Church to do it for him. That, right. that was my reading of that episode. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, it has to be admitted that this is not exactly a shining moment, and it, it has, yeah. um, you know, bitten them in the rear over and over and over ever since. Uh, but it, it's just that when you look at the actual personalities involved and, and what really happened and the historical circumstances, I mean, remember, this is, this is happening in the 16th, well, at least, I mean, obviously Copernicus wrote right around the time that uh, Luther died, the 1540s. And then this is persisting into the next half century and into the 17th century. So this is the, the age of the Reformation and the aftermath of the Reformation. So there is that pressure, this idea that the uh, that you can have this individual interpretation of Scripture that, that uh, some Protestants believed in. And it kind of sounded like that's what Galileo was doing. He's saying, well, look, you know, don't worry, I'll reinterpret those Scripture verses for you. You know, I got this all in hand. Well, hold on a minute. Will you? You? you some scientists can do that for us? But also he had this way of not ingratiating himself into the favor of people he should have. So, for example, he was welcomed and feted by cardinals all over the place. And Copernicus had dedicated his book to Pope Paul III, and it was had been made clear that there was no problem with uh, teaching the Copernican theory. Uh, you know, until there's evidence, like they still couldn't answer the argument from Aristotle, which was which involved stellar parallax. So it's a long story. I've explained this on YouTube if anybody wants to look at it. But the point is, they couldn't answer some of the scientific arguments. So, the, the, so the, the, the posture was, until we get a really good answer to the scientific uh, uh, objections, well, we have to take this as tentative, because we do have some scripture verses that seem to go in the other direction. But we could, you know, let's just say we've misunderstood those if we have overwhelming evidence. So Galileo gets to a point where he starts portraying the Pope. He, he writes out this dialogue. He portrays the Pope as the dunce in the dialogue. You know, so you have that. You have the pressure of the referee. I mean, so I think the way they responded was obviously not to be uh, uh, celebrated. But you can see it as being a drama that was peculiar to that particular moment in time. And then moreover, after that, there appeared to develop a consensus that everybody kind of knows that the, the um, criticism of Galileo was more or less directed at Galileo and scientists could just more or less go on as they had been before because the Jesuit universities were all teaching Copernican cosmology. Hmm. Interesting. That's so do you want to ask Tom one more and then we'll, we could probably let him go. Um, I, uh, okay. I'd like to ask you two more. Um, Push it, why don't you? Yeah. Okay. One of the things you say to promote your free history course, which I think I've got the URL for, is freehistorycourse.com. I've yep. got that right? Yep. <clears throat> okay. There you go. You even got a free plug. Yeah, that's um, right. One of the first things that you learn when you become a libertarian is that most of the presidents that people think are good were actually terrible. So could you give us a quick rundown of some of the five president overrated, overrated presidents and one or two things each of them should make, not just libertarians, but most people think that they're terrible. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, I guess we should do uh, we'll do the 20th century, but I'm going to pick them at random, not in chronological sure. order. 
All right. So, so quickly, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, everybody loves him because he, you saved the country from the great depression. Then the honest historians say, well, he didn't really, but he gave us hope, you know? And, and I, one of my friends says, well, if, if, if you're, if you fall down into a well and somebody shouts, okay, there's a ladder coming. All right. The guy with the ladder is almost here. Okay. We're just about to get the ladder, but there is no ladder. Yeah. yeah, they're giving you hope, but what good did that really do? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. So even if we did give them hope, but if you look at every single one of his economic policies, basically was designed to retard economic recovery. Every single one, crazy agriculture policy, crazy policy trying to restrict industrial output, um, and then raise wages during a depressed economy. Uh, I mean, it just every, everything was just nuts. So that'd be the first one. Okay. Woodrow Wilson would be another one, and that could be partly because the Federal Reserve. Uh, was created under him, uh, and you could come up with some other domestic regulatory stuff. But the main thing would be the elephant in the room with with him is uh, intervention in World War One, which was based on uh, preposterous grounds, uh, double standards, and that led to all kinds of bad consequences for the U.S. and Europe. Teddy Roosevelt would be another one. Everybody loves him, um, but he, you know, his view was that I, you know, I as 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 president, I ought to be able to do whatever I am not prohibited from doing. And so there was an example of a treaty with the Dominican Republic. And um, he wanted this treaty and the Congress wouldn't wouldn't sign off on it. So he just decided to call it not a treaty, but an executive agreement that he would just sign without the Senate's consent. And that set all kinds of terrible precedents. But his view was we need somebody who's got robust energy. And if the legislature is going to be an obstacle to the exercise of the will of the people, then, uh, you know, out it goes. I mean, so that's not a good uh, I would say that's not a good example for people. Um, I think Harry Truman's considered a near great these days. And okay. we'll leave out the the nuclear, the, the atomic bombings. Which I think it's pretty, pretty terrible. I know. All right. But but Harry Truman, I mean, all through his I mean, he had uh, my one of my favorite things is th- th- there was a shortage of meat after the war because they still kept the, a lot of the wartime price controls going. So there's a shortage of meat. And instead of just getting rid of the price controls, he comes up with this plan that thankfully he didn't carry out. He was going to send the military out onto American farms to seize livestock. And that way he would deliver meat. To the, I mean, just totally crazy. Or he, yeah. he attempted yeah. to seize the seal mills. Because they, you know, they weren't um, doing what he wanted, and the Supreme Court had to intervene and say, "You cannot seize the steel mills." Uh, so again, this idea that I'm the president and doggone it, I'll do whatever I darn well please. Um, but I mean, in terms of a president who's thought to be great and turned out to be crummy, I mean, I did talk about Lincoln because there he sets all kinds of precedents for suppressing free speech and suspending habeas corpus and uh, you know ignoring constitutional requirements and carving out the state of West Virginia unconstitutionally and all that. And, yeah. and you could say, oh, but that was under pressure of war or whatever. Okay, but it was a war that was obviously an elective war. But secondly, the key thing here is he's the precedent now for, well, even Lincoln said that you could suppress free speech. Yeah. And even Lincoln said that you can toss yeah. people in jail. Uh, our, you know, our Caesar has become our God, God, basically. Yeah, exactly. So those are my quick lightning round answers. Excellent. Okay, okay. I feel like there's so many things I can ask you. This is a relatively short one, I think. I'm down to five percent power on my computer. Okay. I, I should have brought my my cord. So if I if I go away, that's why. 
That's okay. Okay. Right. I want, I'm interested in Thomas Jefferson because clearly he was like John Locke Mark II. He uh, closed some libertarian gaps in John Locke's philosophy. But people say that as president, he wasn't libertarian or he broke some of his principles. Is that true? And what do you think are the things that he did that he shouldn't have done? Okay. The main thing would be. Um, the embargo that he imposed as a way of trying to get the British and the French to change their behavior because they had been had they'd been harassing American shipping. But he thought that the American economy was strong enough that the absence of trade with the U.S. would put enough economic pressure on those countries to get them to change their behavior. But it, it wasn't. And so all he did was harass Americans. And there were searches and seizures that were that did not reach, you know, constitutional requirements, let's say. So that was definitely the big one. What, what usually people will point out is the Louisiana Purchase. And they'll say that uh, the Constitution doesn't authorize that. But overwhelmingly, um, certainly his party did believe and had believed for a long time that uh, that you could certainly you could enter into a treaty and that a treaty that involved the transfer of territory was perfectly constitutionally legitimate. It was only Jefferson who had these qualms uh, that maybe there was a constitutional obstacle. His allies were all saying, what, what are you talking about? There, there is no constitutional qualm here. So I think people are hitting him unjustly on that one, although it does involve the expenditure of tax money. So there is that. Yeah. But the constitutional question, I don't think, is as big of a deal. But the fact that he repealed all taxes except uh, you know, basically a tariff and then had, um, you know, land sales were also a source of revenue for the government. But he he let people out of prison who'd been jailed under the Alien and Sedition Acts for speaking out. And he refunded people who had been fined under that act and repaid them. Okay. Um, and by and large, left people alone. Otherwise, um, you know, I think his record, I think they've exaggerated the wickedness of his record. I think that's, geez, we would kill for a president like that. Sure. Yeah. What about what about him owning so many slaves? Okay, but you asked specifically about as president. Yeah. What I know, I know, I know you just gave me a hard time. Well, he's he's wrong about it, but but his, okay, his, okay. his you know his views on slavery are a subject for another episode because there okay. there is some interesting writing about how he wanted to try to deal with that in a way that would be best for everybody and you know you okay. say he was too timid but what was politically possible in Virginia at that time and I'll tell you somewhere where there's going to be no slavery on, on the, the contra cruise. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much, Tom. I feel like we could talk forever. I've enjoyed this so much. You yeah. have no idea. Uh, you're welcome back on the show anytime. Um, well, thank you. Let, let me give a plug for tomsfreebooks.com. You can continue this in your own mind by going to Tom Woods, uh, I beg your pardon, tomsfreebooks.com. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know Tom's podcast, Tom Woods podcast, shame on you. Uh, get over there right now to exactly, Tom Woods. Exactly, the Tom Woods yeah. show. Thank you, guys. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you, and have a good day. Thanks. Until next time. Bye-bye. Okay.